Acts chapter 7. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts, let's do the smart thing and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now and we are thankful to be here this morning. Help us just to understand what you have written and to apply it to our lives, not just to hear it, but just to also do it as well. We pray for safety for everybody out there on the roads and we say thank you for the time to be here in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 7. It's a difficult chapter to teach through, and it's not that it's difficult because of theology or even the application points. It's difficult because if you look at this, starting in verse 2 of Acts chapter 7, going all the way to verse 53, it's one long message. It's the longest recorded message in the book of Acts. And what makes it difficult is to really try to get the feel and the theme for what Stephen is doing here. If we were listening to him just teach through this or just speak it, It'd be a little different, but as we go through and try to catch all these points, it makes it difficult to make sure that we have the flow of it. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning, and get the points that he's mentioning, but also make sure we have a good understanding of the flow of what he's trying to say. A little bit of background, if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we were first introduced to Stephen at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. As we joked last week, Stephen was the Meals on Wheels guy. He made sure that the widows got their food. But as he was growing in the Lord, uh, the Lord then started using him as a great uh, orator and debater of God's word. And that's what you see in the second half of Acts chapter 6. Well, some of the stuff he said got him in trouble with the Jewish leadership. And so what you see here in Acts chapter 7 is his argument or defense in front of the Jewish leadership. Now, I use that word defense lightly because Stephen's not trying to defend himself. He's not. Now, I'm not trying to give away a spoiler here, but at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen gets martyred for his faith. So what you have here is the last recorded words of him. He's not begging for his life. He's not begging for mercy. He actually sees this as an opportunity to really proclaim the truth of the Lord. Now this message is interesting because it goes through Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses. And it talks about the temple and all these things. And you may wonder, well, what does this have to do with anything that we're talking about? Well, go back to the accusations they made against Stephen. Look at Acts 6 verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And look at verses 13 and 14. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. So that's what they accused him of. Speaking against Moses, against the temple, and against the law. So Stephen brings up Moses and the temple and the law. And the whole purpose of it is he goes through Israel's history very eloquently to bring us from Abraham to Jesus. And that's what you're going to see this morning, is Stephen going from Abraham to Jesus and then presenting salvation to them. Now, verse 1 of Acts chapter 7, and the high priest said, are these things so? Open door right there. Open door. That's a phrase that we use a lot in Christianity, is having an open door. In Revelation 3, Jesus said, I will open a door for you that no one can shut. In Colossians 4, Paul said, pray that we may have an open door. What that means is you have that door that is open to share the gospel. Everything is aligned. It's the right time to do it. And you can really present spirit-led what the Lord is trying to tell you to say. Now, here's the thing about an open door. When I first got saved, I didn't really understand the concept of open door. So as a new believer, I thought I was supposed to kick down every door. So I kicked down a lot of doors. And I never had any fruit that came out of a kicked-down door. I used to think when people said, well, you got to wait for an open door, I used to think, yeah, you're lukewarm in your faith because you just go. Now that I'm older and wiser and better looking, I realize the open door <laughs> is this understanding of you wait for God. Trust me, there are things that I want to tell people. The Lord hasn't opened a door yet. There's things that I, I want to go do. God hasn't opened a door yet. I could go do those things, but it would be done in the flesh and it would not be fruitful. 
What you see here with Stephen, this is an open door. Are these things so? He's got the entire Sanhedrin, everybody else there, asking him, is this stuff true? What an opportunity to share the Lord. Remember, as you are reading these verses and what he says, these are his final words. As he starts saying this in verse 2, he's literally minutes away, 20 minutes, I don't know, a half hour away from being stoned to death. So let's see what he has to say. He starts out, verse 2. He said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Iran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Iran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now we read those seven verses there and we say, okay, um, thanks. History. He's going to tell in 50 verses 2,000 years of history. That's what he's going to do, and he does it quite well. So we look at verses 2 through 8, and we say, okay, I got it, Abraham. What's the point that he's trying to make? He's bringing up the father of the Jews here, if you will, Abraham, the one that God started. And guess what he says about him? In verses 2, 3, and 4, he says, hey, I want to remind you, Abraham didn't listen real well. Because God called him, said, leave your family, but he didn't leave his family in verse 4, and he had to wait till his father died, etc. We've been going through Genesis, we've talked about this. The first point he's trying to make is Abraham, this man that you elevate to the super saint status, didn't really listen real well. Catch what he's trying to say here. He's trying to build the point to them, you're not listening real well. So just like Abraham didn't listen real well sometimes to what the Lord has to say, you're not listening real well to what the Lord has to say. Now, he hasn't got to that point yet, but this is what he's trying to plant in them. But look also as he goes through this, verse 5, the promise. See, every time he picks on somebody, and he's going to pick on Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, and the ancestors. But what do we always say, especially when we went through our study in Revelation? Anytime there's judgment, there's always grace. So he's going to pick on Abraham for not listening, but he also reminds us in verse 5, the promise that God gave Abraham. You've got to remember this promise. When the Lord gave this promise to Abraham, there's no way that Abraham could have had a child. No way. Remember, Abraham had a child when he was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. That's not possible. The Bible actually says that Abraham, who was as good as dead, a child came. But God gave him the promise, and if God promised it, he's going to fulfill it. Now think about what was going through Abraham's mind, as we mentioned this before. Abraham's name initially meant exalted father. He was eventually called Abram. But then God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, back during Bible times, if you would meet somebody, their name meant something. So when you would meet Abraham, father of a multitude, the first thing you would think of is, okay, how many kids does this guy have? So back then, when they were making little classic small talk like we do today, hey, Abraham, father of a multitude, how many kids do you have? None. Why is your name father of a multitude? That's like people calling me too tall. You know, it just doesn't make sense. (laughs) 
the promise was he was going to have kids. Okay, well, he's pushing a hundred now. This whole father of a multitude thing. Have you ever had a promise that God gave you, and as time goes on, it's really difficult to believe that promise? Think about this. Think of all the promises that God has given you. Romans 8, 28, and all things God works for the good of those that love and that are called according to his purposes. If you are born again today, and you're sitting here, and you have a difficult situation in your life right now, God says, I'm going to use this for good. That's a promise. God has also promised you eternal life. God's also promised you the strength to get through the difficult times. God has promised you the Holy Spirit. Think of all these promises that God has given you. But yet, when the going gets tough, do we believe those promises? See, by mentioning Abraham here, sometimes Abraham didn't believe the promise. That's why we have the whole Hagar thing that comes in. That's where Ishmael came from. Because what happened was Sarah's too old to have a kid. Okay, God promised this kid it's not really working out the way we want, so let's bring Hagar in. Abraham, you hook up with Hagar, and we'll at least get a kid that way. They started doubting the promise. And it's amazing how when I start talking to people in counseling and we talk about the promises of God and we say, God has promised you strength during difficult times. God has promised you mercy. God has promised that he will work for the good in these things. I usually hear some response like, well, yeah, must not be for me. You are not the one exemption to the rule. You're not. God promised, so therefore he will fulfill that promise. He will. And it's a test of our faith. Let's just be completely honest. It's a test of our faith to say, Lord, even in the dark times, when things are happening that I don't see, I don't get, I understand, and I don't like, do I still trust that you have a big picture here and a plan, and I'm part of that plan? Abraham had to trust that. So, what is Stephen trying to do? He's trying to already tell him from the beginning, your great person that you thought was the greatest leader of the Jews, yeah, sometimes he wasn't obedient, but... God still used them and had a promise. So let's go to the next group. We're mentioned here in verse 8. The patriarchs. The patriarchs are the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what did they do wrong? Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with them. So these patriarchs that they have elevated, what are they known for? They're known for selling their brother into slavery. Once again, these men that they have looked so far up to that are perfect are sinful. That's what Stephen is trying to say. There's sin here. So he goes through the whole story here at verse 10, how God blessed Joseph, and Joseph became second in charge of Egypt. Verse 11 and 12, there was a famine, so the brothers had to come to Joseph to get the food that was needed. And so what happened here is, now the Jews, through the patriarchs, are now settled in Egypt, through Joseph. So their actions were sinful, yes, but what else do you see? God's hand protected them, completely protected them. You know, a few weeks ago, I should say a few months ago, when we were studying in Luke, we did the story of Jesus in the boat and crossing the sea when the storm hit. And we made the simple point that as long as you're in the boat with Jesus, you're not going to sink. You're not. So as long as you stay in the boat with Christ, you'll be okay. Because if, if Jesus drowns, there's bigger problems in life. He's not going to drown. He can't. He's not. Okay, the 12 patriarchs here, they're not going to starve to death. They're not. Yes, there's a famine. Yes, food is tight. God did not promise Abraham and gave him Isaac, who then had Jacob, who then had the 12. God did not set this all up for the 12 tribes of Israel to starve to death. It didn't, wasn't going to happen. So even though their actions were sinful, God still divinely protected them and watched out for them. 
Now bring this back to Stephen's message. Who is he talking to? The Jews. Your actions are sinful, but God is still divinely protecting you and watching out for you. Bring it back to us. My actions are sinful. God still watches out for me. Grace and mercy. I am in no need. I mean, have you ever had that moment of where you're praying, and in the middle of your prayer you're realizing, I am completely unworthy to even speak to him. Completely unworthy. But yet, what did the writer of Hebrews tell us? We can boldly go to the throne of grace. Boldly go. I'm completely unworthy to ask for anything, but God still says, James, ask. I want to protect you. I want to watch out for you. I want to be actively, intimately involved in your life. That's an amazing thing. So after the 12 patriarchs, what do we have here now? Moses. What happened during Egypt, verses 17, 18, and 19, a new pharaoh comes around, a pharaoh that didn't know the history of Joseph, and that pharaoh says, I don't care who they are. So what happens then? Verse 19, this man, talking about the Pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they may not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. See, now Moses. Okay, now what can you say bad about Moses? I mean, this is the guy that got to go up in Mount Sinai. This is the guy that got the Ten Commandments. This is the guy that came down and his face was still glowing, that he wore a veil for a while. I mean, this is Moses. This, this is the man in Judaism. So what happens here? Verse 21, when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and it was mighty in words and deed. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses had a calling on his heart at 40 years old. He all of a sudden saw the Jews, saw what was happening, and there was this move in his heart. Verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? And he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses is really Moses the murderer. That's what Stephen's trying to tell him. Moses is a murderer. So, I mean, think about this. You're standing in front of the Jewish leadership of the day. You're standing before the high priest, and most people believe the high priest at this time is still the same high priest that had Jesus killed. So you're standing before these guys, and you're bringing up everybody that's important to them. Abraham. Yeah, remember how Abraham didn't listen to God? The patriarchs. Yeah, do you remember when the patriarchs sold their brother as a slave boy? That was real fun, wasn't it? And remember Moses? Moses, the murderer? Stephen is trying to tell them that the history of the Jews is a history of sinful people that God still wants to work with, that God still loves. So Moses is the murderer. That's the point that he brings out. So what happens here in verse 29? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, parents, if you have kids... The longest time out in the Bible is 40 years, if you're looking for that information. Moses went to a 40-year time out. That's what he went to. So now at the age of 80, he was ready. I don't know what Moses' plan was. Was he just going to secretly walk around and kill an Egyptian one by one every day? I don't know. But it wasn't going to work. Have you ever had that? Where you knew what the Lord wanted you to do, but instead of waiting on God's timing, you were just going to do it in your own flesh and your own mindset. This person is wrong. We know they're wrong. I know they're wrong. So I'm going to go just tell them why they're wrong. Was the Spirit leading you? No, not really. But I'm just going to tell them. 
Moses had a calling, but he was going to fulfill that calling in his own flesh, his own way, randomly taking out Egyptians one by one. No. So what you see here right now with Moses is he had to go to 40 years. He had to learn a little bit. God brings him back. And guess what happens? Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel appeared to him in the bush. What do you think Stephen's trying to say? Israel, you have a history of rejecting somebody who God wants to use. Just like Jesus. You're rejecting the man that God raised up to deliver you. Look at this. You rejected the man that God raised up to deliver you. Just like you're going to reject Jesus. Now, he hasn't said that yet. That's what he's getting to. Because look at verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, who's that person? Jesus. And that's the point that Stephen's trying to get. God used a murderer to become the ruler and deliverer. Now, what does that mean for us today? All of you came in with some type of past. You guys all came in with some type of baggage. God still wants to use you. It amazes me how sometimes when I talk to people and we talk about the Lord wanting to use them and and God wanting to be involved in their life, the only thing they can think of is absolutely everything they've done wrong. And they have this whole long conversation with themselves on how they're unqualified to serve. And we just talked about Stephen last week, an ordinary man that God did extraordinary things. I'm telling you right now as I stand up here to teach, I am not qualified to be up here teaching. Sometimes my actions as a father, as a husband, even as a pastor, I shouldn't be up here. But God says, okay, James, I forgive you. I give you grace. I give you mercy. Go up there and teach through me. Because I can't do it. I'm not qualified and I'm not deserving of this. We have Abraham, the liar. We have the patriarchs that sell brothers into slavery. We have Moses, the murderer. And God says, I still want to use them. So you may be sitting here today thinking that what you have done or said or what have you is so far removed from the grace and mercy of the Lord. Oh boy, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. God loves, God forgives. But we need to talk about this for a second here because... Now, as we get into the last group, their ancestors, their fathers. Well, what happened to them? If you take a look here, verse 38, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. With our fathers. The ones who received the living oracles to give to us. See, the Jews always had this. We're special because God gave us the law. We're special. We're a special group of people because God gave us the law. And their minds that elevated them to a stature over everybody else. They had a privilege of that, a title of that. Well, what did they do with that? Verse 39. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. So once again, what's his point? Your ancestors, who you elevate, that received the law, they're the ones that jumped into idolatry. Basically, the people you idolize were idolizers. He's trying to get the point across to them. They are a sinful group of people that he's talking to. Can you go with me a little to Exodus 32? We've got to talk a little bit more about this whole golden calf thing. 
Exodus 32. So what we've been trying to do with this message is we talk about what Stephen was talking about. Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, the ancestors, our fathers. How it applied to his message. Then we talked about how God still used these sinful people. And then also then how it applies to us. So, how does this one apply to us? The golden calf. Look here in Exodus 32. Have you ever had a situation that's happened in your life that is not funny? But yet you just can't help but laugh. Exodus 32 is not a funny chapter in any way whatsoever. But when I read some of these verses, I can't help but laugh of what happened. Moses comes down off the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's with Joshua. They hear the party of all parties going on. They're trying to figure out what it is. Is this a war? Is this a battle? No, it's a party. So as Moses walks into this this debauchery of a party, he comes up to Aaron, who's supposed to be in charge. And what happens, verse 21 of Exodus 32, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to him, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to him, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. I love that. The calf just came out. We threw gold in the fire, and the calf just came out. We don't even know what happened. Now, that applies to us today. That applies to us all the time. I'll give you a quick story about that. I think I may have shared this a couple Wednesdays ago, so just, just bear with me. It wasn't too long ago that Kenan came into the living room at our house, our third child, and he had blood coming down off of his head. He's in tears. And I said, what happened? And he says, Layden hit me. Layden's our fourth son. So a few seconds later, Layden walks in carrying a wooden hammer. Layden, what happened? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Kenan says you hit him with this hammer. I don't know. He's got the smoking gun in his hand type of thing. So Layden, what happened? He goes, I don't know what happened. Kenan just got hit. Isn't that what we do in life? The calf just came out. Well, what happened? I don't know what happened. I just got worked up and I started saying things I shouldn't say. Oh, come on. Oh, you know what happened? She started saying this. He started saying that. And they just pushed my buttons. You know what it's like. And so I did this. The calf just came out. That's just a bunch of excuses. The book of James makes it abundantly clear that you are given the privilege of free will. And with that privilege of free will, you can base your sin on nobody. If you said something you shouldn't have said, you're wrong for that. Well, they pushed me and pushed me. It does not matter. Well, if I wouldn't have to work with these type of people, it does not matter. We have this excuse in our world today that the calf just came out. I didn't mean to say anything. I didn't mean to cause it. But I'm so sick and tired of hearing Christians use the word but. as like some type of excuse. Like what this person said to you or did to you was so awful and horrible that you now have an exemption from God to be angry at them and be unforgiving towards them and to do this. Because what they did was awful. So God said, you know what? I really wanted you to love everybody. But that one is such a jerk. I am okay with it. I'm really okay with it. No. We have the calf came out excuse. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of, in my mind, and sometimes vocally saying, well, you know what? This person said so much and pushed so much that it's only my reaction. I have self-control. I need to exhibit self-control. And that's something I need to work on. That's something we all need to work on. we got to stop the whole calf just came out thing. Because that's exactly what we still do. 
We'd all be wonderful, great Christians if we didn't have to work and live with these awful heathens. The calf came out, excuse. we got to stop it. Because look at what Stephen has got to this point now. Abraham, yeah, he didn't fully obey. God still gave him a promise to use him. Then we're up to the patriarchs. Yeah, they're selling brothers into slavery, but God still protected them. Moses, yeah, he's the murderer. But you know what? God still used him to be ruler and deliverer. And then the patriarchs. The patriarchs are now getting into idolatry and sin. The point that Moses is, excuse me, that Stephen is trying to say here is, guys, you're no different than them. And that's what he's going to get to. But before he gets to that, he needs to talk about the temple real quick. Because it says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witnesses in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So we were given the tabernacle in the wilderness that we had, but then jump ahead to verse 47, then God gave us the temple... And we think we're super special again because we have the temple. But verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? How arrogant of the Jews to think, Oh, we have the temple. Dare we say, we have God contained. To us. Boy, oh boy. See, Stephen now has effectively put down Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, the ancestors, and dare we now say the temple. Now, before we think that Stephen's wrong for putting down the temple, he's not putting down the temple. He's putting down their logic of it. Because remember, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil of the temple? It was ripped. It was torn. Showing now we all have access to God. All of us. But yet, this is how they lived in this mindset. So now Stephen gets to the point, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen basically says, all your bigwigs have rejected God at one point. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, referring to Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have rejected the law by the direction of angels, have not kept it. Stephen says, my point is this. You ignore the fact that Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, our ancestors, all were sinful people. To the point sometimes of doing things that were awful, but God still protected them and promised them and watched out for them and used them. And he still wants to do that today for you. But you guys are rejecting now the most important one. The just one, the prophet that Moses proclaimed, which is Jesus. Now, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Stop right there. When somebody is convicted by the Spirit, they would do one of two things. They would either repent or be enraged. There really is not much of a middle ground. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. Instead of hearing this and realizing he's right, he's wrong. Isn't that what happens? When we hear something that we don't like to hear, when somebody tells us something that may be biblical and spirit-led, if we don't like it and convicts us, we just make an excuse in our mind, well, they're wrong, because I know I'm right. So they're convinced themselves that they're right. Stephen just very eloquently said, you're wrong. Now we've got to talk about this thing, this idea of hearing. Because look at verse 54. When they heard these things, look back to verse 37. The prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. It is so vital to hear the Lord. It really is. But more than hearing the Lord, 
it's doing. There's a pastor that uh, Dawn and I have been listening to a lot lately, and his name is Francis Chan, if you get a chance to listen to him. got some really amazing things to say, and one of the examples that he uses is about hearing God but not doing. And he gives the example of, as a parent, if you would ask your child to go clean their room. So you say to your child, hey, I need you to go clean your bedroom. So the child goes into the bedroom, shuts the door. Parent comes back a couple hours later, looks in the bedroom, and realizes the door, the bedroom has not been cleaned one bit. Hasn't changed at all. So the parent says to the child, did you not hear what I said? I asked you to clean the room. And the child goes, oh, I heard it. I heard it. And I thought your words were so important, I memorized exactly what you said. And I thought your words were so important, not only did I not memorize it, I actually took what you said, clean your room, and I wrote it down, and I hung it up on my wall, so every day when I get up, I can learn and memorize your words. In fact, I think your words are so important, I'm going to invite all my friends over, and we're going to do a study on that phrase, clean your room, because it's a great phrase. And I'm going to get into the Greek and Hebrew and really think what it means to clean your room. But why don't you just do it? See, don't we do that as Christians? Boy, that's a good verse. I'm going to mark that verse. I'm going to underline that verse. I'm going to highlight that verse. I'm going to circle the verse. I'm going to star the verse. I'll even put an octagon around the verse. And then I'm going to put that verse up on my wall. I'm going to put that verse in my car. And I'm going to memorize that verse. And I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can with that verse. And we're going to even start a small group study at church on that verse. Why don't you just do the verse? We have a tendency to have head knowledge without follow-through. We have a tendency to pat ourselves on the back for the Bible we know, the scriptures we know, and everything like that without ever actually doing it. Do you ever realize how simple God tries to make Christianity? I mean, mean, think about these complex things and how simple they are. The complexity of marriage. No. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives respect, honor, and submit. That's what it is. Now are you going to do it? Well, forgiveness. You don't know what they've said. You don't know what they've done. Yeah, but the Bible says you're supposed to forgive them just like Christ forgave you. Now we just got to do it. See, we, we take these really difficult things and we try to make it complex when really, let's just do it. I mean, I mean, how simple is this? If we would just make this our goal this week. The Lord says it's good, so I do it. The Lord says it's bad, so I don't. How simple is that? So when I read that verse, and that verse is, don't gossip, well, I'll memorize it, I'll write it out, I'll underline it, but I'm also going to not gossip. When that verse talks about forgiveness, I'll I'll go through my heart and say, Lord, who do I need to forgive? That verse says, watch your temper. Okay, Lord, I really want to do that. And I think sometimes as Christians, and I've looked at my own life sometimes, and I see the verses I write out, I see the sticky notes in my car, I see the sticky notes in my office, and I am surrounded by God's Word. But am I going to do it? I hear it, but am I going to do it? See, the Jews, man, did they have privilege. Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, the temple, the law. And they just kept rejecting and rejecting and rejecting. But they had convinced themselves they were okay. Because we have Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, and the law. Yeah, but are you doing it? So they're cut to the heart. Gnashing teeth, verse 55. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Isn't it fascinating? Go back to verse 2 of the same chapter. Brethren and Father, listen. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. What just happened to Stephen right there in verse 56? The God of glory appeared to him. 
Is that fascinating? They cried out with a loud voice, stopped the ears, and ran at him with one accord. Because he just basically said, I see Jesus up in heaven, equal with God. They couldn't handle it anymore, so they ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at his feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So much here, and I don't want to go quickly through it, but I need to. Time makes us... The idea of stoning is an awful, awful, horrible thing. It's not in the law this way, but what the Jews had done is they created the law that was a supplement to the law. And the way they said you were supposed to do stoning was this. is You take the person and you kick them outside the city, and one person knocks them down. And then you go double a man's height. So... 12 foot, whatever, and you hold a stone over their head while they're laying on their stomach, and you drop a stone on their head. Now, if that doesn't kill them, you roll the person over, same thing, about 12 foot up in the air, you now drop a stone on their heart. If that doesn't kill them, it's a free-for-all. Everybody grab a stone and just go at them. And that's exactly what happened here. And who's watching? Saul. Now, verse 58, as we know, Saul becomes Paul. Now, this is very important. I'm going to go through these points quickly. Think of the person in your life that you think will never, ever, ever get it figured out. And then think of Saul, how he became Paul. And that person that you have convinced yourself could never know the mercy of Jesus, he is ripe for the picking when it comes to salvation. Problem is, I do this every now and then, and I have somebody that comes up to me after church inevitably and says, yeah, but you don't know this guy. Oh, come on. Saul became Paul. The mercy of Jesus can touch anybody. And to be quite honest with you, not to pick on you, if you have convinced yourself that someone can't be saved, you are doubting God. Because the Lord can move in anybody's life. And what else do we see here? We see in verse 60, Stephen just simply falling asleep. What a beautiful picture of death. When you are born again and saved, death is so simple. It is just the passing of this world and to the next world, the passing of this life into eternal life. Because you have the peace of Christ. But look what he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. It amazes me how often we hang on to unforgiveness, and we have Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. We have Stephen saying, Lord, forgive them. Once again, some of you may come in here this morning, and you have been wronged, you have been hurt, and you have been wronged and hurt horribly. I don't know what happened. Someone lied to you. Someone spoke ill of you behind your back. Someone spoke ill of you to your face. I don't know. But you can forgive them. And the reason we can forgive them is because Jesus set the example. The Bible makes it clear. Just as Christ forgave us, we forgive others. Just as Stephen forgave his killers, we can forgive. Now, once again, at this point, there's usually somebody that says, you don't know what they've done to me. I know what I did to Jesus, and he forgave me. And I'm the good one here. I know what you guys did to Jesus, and he forgave you, you know? Come on. If Christ can so easily forgive, why can't we? Seriously, if we have tasted forgiveness, but yet we hold it back from others. Remember, forgive means to let go. To let go of it. So often I hear people say, well, I forgive them, but... And there's that but again. I let it go. I forgive them. I let it go. Boy, that's a tough thing to do. But Jesus set the example for it. Stephen set the example for it. What a beautiful picture of love, grace, and mercy. What does this all mean? Let's bring this all together. Stephen is very simply trying to tell them, hey, listen, 
Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, your ancestors, they were all sinful. But God still used them and wanted to use them and have a relationship with them. He still protected them. He still promised them. He still used them. And he wants to do that to you. But just like they all at certain times sinned, you have sinned too. And just like your ancestors rejected the person God called, you have now rejected Jesus. And he says, you guys, very simply put, verse 51, you're stubborn. And since you're stubborn, you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life to make the changes that you need to be that need to be made. And the same thing happens to us today. Every single one of us here, the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts right now, saying, What changes are you willing to make for me? Are we stubborn? Because remember what's going to happen. We're either going to repent or be enraged. And sometimes our enraged is simple. I've been enraged sometimes when I've heard a message that's convicting me, and I'm so enraged I lean over two feet and I shut the radio off. It's amazing how as soon as that teaching ends, I feel better. And some of you may be here right now saying, I just need to get out of this building. I don't know. Repent or be enraged. What is it going to be? If the Lord has laid something in your heart that needs to change, let's change it here. If those that are helping with communion want to come forward, this is what we're going to do here as we get ready to partake of communion. And as always, as the kids come in, a couple.